Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode 47, Purgatorio, canto tredicesimo, the fourth day, early afternoon. We left yesterday with a brief mention of the significance of the number 13 in the Divine Comedy, and I didn't realize we'd been resuming it in the 13th canto of this book. It couldn't have been more perfect if I tried. 13 appears already in the Inferno as the number of the damned who have something in common with each other, like whether they spoke their name or alluded to themselves or they were in the same place. However, this takes on a more interesting meaning in Purgatory, because the souls are in fact 12. The 13th is always Dante. According to yet another conspiracy theory about Dante's affiliation, it is a sign that he was in fact somewhat sympathetic to the Templars. Personally, I think it's more likely that both the Templars and Dante took their number from the same source, rather than one from the other, but I am a sucker for Dan Brown-style idiocies, and so you'll have to suffer with them with me. Alas. As much as I could spend the whole day talking about numerology, we have a canto to look at, so let's get started. We find Dante at the top of the stairs that lead to the second terrace, and we are reminded that the stair is on a mountain that purifies us from sin. In the original, he uses the word demala, which as a literal translation would render uh, like this evil. Sin here is not a fluffy concept like we sometimes think of it nowadays, as if evil was something else external from us who are fundamentally good. This new terrace is smaller and it has no images carved in it, it's just straight, smooth rock. According to Hollander, this is the only instance in which we reach the terrace at the beginning of the canto, but it leaves us to speculate as why that may be, even though I'm sure commentators must have had a like, wasted a lot of ink on the subject. Perhaps we can come back to it ourselves. The description of the terrace is fitting for what we will see is the scene there purified, envy. We think of envy as some sort of jealousy of others, which is, in fact, a form of greed. I was watching a talk just the other day in which the speaker, who is a mindset coach, asked us to examine our life motivations in terms of who inspires us or who we envy. And that Envy was not a bad thing, whatever religious traditions say. I guess, to an extent, she has a point. All emotions we feel tell us something about ourselves that is worth knowing. But what envy tells us goes beyond what desires in our life are unfulfilled. Even if we held to the more simplistic modern definition of envy, these desires themselves tell us where our priorities lie. And that's why the religious tradition that she criticized without understanding considers envy a negative. The medieval view of envy, however, was a lot stricter than ours. It was not mere jealousy in which you're fine with someone having what you want as long as you two get to have it. It was the active desire that a person should lose the good you want for yourself. And Orlando put it really well in saying it was an expression of resentment against the perceived happiness of others. You don't just want to raise yourself to their level, you want them to be thrown down to yours too. Verses 13 to 21 are an interesting section, with Virgil praying to the sun. Earlier commentators have read it in a metaphorical form as an address to God, while modern ones take more literalist approaches which make the sun to be either the actual sun or some halfway metaphor for reason. 
in favor of the literary view is the parallel with Cato's words a few canty back and the fact that life itself is a guide to man's actions. Since we like conspiracy theories here, addressing the sun in prayer is reminiscent of the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, known as the Canticle of the Creatures. In that vein, it could be an address to God without a metaphor. He is praised because of and through his cre creation. Anyway, Virgil's fear will not come to pass. In the time that it took him to do his monologue, souls have become near and Dante can hear them. One talks about the lack of wine, a sentence that is reminiscent of the words our lady told our lord at the wedding of Cana. Then we hear a second voice that tells us he is arrested. And then we hear singing about loving your enemies. Dante asks about who they are, only to be told in general that the terror punishes envy. But of course, commentators have been up think if, uh, fleshing it out. The first voice where we hear is in fact indeed the Blessed Virgin Mary at Cana, resounding miraculously in the terrace as an example of charity. I'm Orestes, instead, is another example of charity, but a classical one. Orestes appears in a cycle of myths about purification, but this instance is a reference to when his friend Pilates, who has also been considered by some late authors as Lucian to have been a romantic partner, claimed to be him to spare him death. And Orestes then insisted it really was himself to spare him being punished in his stead, and that's basically a cycle of them claiming to be Orestes. Nobody knows for sure which of the two voices we heard, and commentators have taken both sides for various reasons, but I think the most reasonable is that it was Pilates. And the third voice is an admonishment of our Lord himself, as in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 44. The reason why the examples are heard and not seen is soon explained. The penitents have their eyes sewn together. Dante is moved to great pity and with Virgil's advice addresses them seeking a fellow Italian for reasons I don't understand except maybe so that the soul can make a point that our true citizenship is in heaven and we were exiles on earth, living like strangers in a land that wasn't our own. But the soul speaking will be indeed the soul of someone who lived this earthly life in Tuscany, specifically Siena, and actually for once it was a woman. She says she wasn't wise, even if she was called Sapia, and that she rejoiced more in other people's misfortunes than her own fortune. Then she references the praying for the defeat of her city in the Battle of Colle Valdelsa, something of which she repented at her death, and she tells us she only is in purgatory proper already because of the charity and prayers of Pier Pettinaio, who became blessed Pier Pettinaio in 1802. He was a third of the Franciscan, well-known and well-liked in Siena, where he was considered a saint in his lifetime, and at the time of the conversation would have been dead just 11 years. He had died at the old age of 100, a long life devoted to God, even while he was married. Then the exchange moves on to Sapia asking who Dante is, since he's alive, and we get an interesting insight into Dante's view of himself. He expects to have his eyes sewn for a short while too, but he is more scared of the purgation of the terrace below. Still, neither will come to Pasqua yet, as he is due to return on Earth, where he is happy to go and do something on Sapia's behalf, and she, of course, will ask for his prayers and for her reputation to be repaired among her relatives. The canto ends with a short invective that Sapia addresses to the foolishness of her fellow men in Siena 
who will be soon engaged in a bizarre scheme to increase their commerce by sea when Siena is far from the sea. It's a reference akin to the modern joke about the Swiss Navy. Commentators have been divided in their assessment of Sapia based on these few lines. For most of the canto, she seems a chained woman, acutely aware of her faults, but this comment seems to bring her back to her old ways. This, in a way, should be expected, since we talk about a person in purgatory and not heaven. At the same time, it's not necessarily a sign of her envy that she would say such a thing. It could be also seen as a warning about the consequences of an excess in civic pride, since there was no other reason for a son like Siena to want to get in the race of maritime commerce. The tongue can be easily imputed to Dante's own prejudice anyway, rather than being seen as a reflection on his the, like, uh, painting of Ercata. If anything, she was being charitable. All in all, this canto is one of the interludes where most that happens is set in the scene for what comes next, or it's just a filler to keep the point going according to the very symbolic metric that Dante shows. However, it is not boring or empty, and the contrast between Dante being able to see the purgation that takes place but not being able to see is very poignant. There is a lot that we can see in, in these in terms of the way losing sight gives us a greater awareness of what is going on inside us, and the contemplation of the grace we cannot see that is made concrete in the sun that they can feel but that doesn't guide their sight as it did in, when they looked at, but looked upon people in envy. Uh, the difference now is that the souls are forced to contemplate their spiritual poverty in the life they left behind, because the distractions have been removed. Not only the distraction because the world isn't there, but also the internal ones that come from the roots of sin that they started to purify in the first terrace. Having overcome pride means that they are not as self-centered as they were before. The idea of envy as related to the eye may not be as obvious in English as it is in Italian. The word invidia comes precisely from the Latin root of video, which is the verb to see. It means to look with an evil eye. It's easier to see the wider meaning of envy at the time of Dante if we stick to the meaning of the word in its original Latin, which encompassed many ways in which we can look maliciously at others. It's also easy to see how pride present in this scene too. Uh, there will be more on the subject tomorrow as we meet more of the penitent souls. Bye bye! Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is fun for 10 or ads if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore Sheik or on my blog www.sheikandcatholic.com.